looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Today in the hot seat, we have Dennis Shapiro. Dennis, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, so my name is Dennis Shapiro. I'm the founder of SH Capital Group, where we have an income fund. Uh, and I'm the, writer, uh, the author of the Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. Awesome. Yeah. And so you sent me a, a copy of the book. I've got my copy right here. Um, the Alternative Investment Almanac. Great, great book. Like I told you before we started recording, I really enjoyed the reading. I, I pounded through it in about a day or two, um, just because you kind of kept me on my toes with what was going to be coming next as far as topic goes and who was going to comment on it. And I enjoyed that. You had some some big wigs in the industry uh, do a Q&A at the end of each chapter, which I found was cool. And just kind of like a quick overview of the book. You know, you talk about yourself and your story. You start talking about life insurance, uh, infinite banking, apartments, long-term mortgage notes, mobile home parks, self-storage, multi-asset funds, ATM funds, and tech startups. I mean, we could do an episode on each of those, to be honest, a whole series, but you know, I'm sure we'll have you back on, but we're going to talk about a few of those things. But before we really get into the nitty gritty about you know what you are doing, what the book was based off of, some of those concepts in there that people are unfamiliar with, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you got into the industry of investing in real estate as a whole? So uh, my journey starts uh, when I was in high school. My oldest brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, We are very much a family where if one of us finds something that's good, we really try to brainwash everybody else in the family uh, to kind of think in in doctrine in that type of uh, mentality. So my brother read Rich Rich Dad, Poor Dad. His light bulb switched. He was about eight years older than me. He gave me the copy. I was 14 years old and I read it and I absolutely hated it. So what I was, I was such a cynic. I was like, this guy's probably making more money on his tours and his books than what he actually writes in the book. And I didn't really have the, the right mentality for it. Uh, but what I did get out of it, and my mentality completely changed years later after rereading it and a different mindset. Uh, what I did get out of that book, though, was I should be buying some kind of assets. So I was 14 years old. I think I was working like a pizzeria job at the time. Uh, I saved up like $1,000. I had a Scotch trade account at that time. That's how old I am, apparently. <laughs> and I bought my first mutual fund. I waited the whole year. I thought I was going to get rich. It literally went up by $7, which was the cost of the trade at that time. Uh, and I was like, all right, there's got to be a better way because I should be rich by now. It's been a year. And, uh, you know, as 14-year-olds think. And I was like, well, you know, I have to do something better. So I started being like, well, what's better than just mutual funds? Let me learn how to stock pick. Let me go through Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and everything like that. And I started getting into those. And as I started progressing with that, I was like, well, this is really what I want to do for my career. I love, you know, picking stocks and doing all this stuff. You know, let me go to college for this. And I went into college and smack right into the global financial crisis where I was interviewing for like internships one day. And then like a month later, the place I interviewed for is like out of business. I was like, oh, okay, this, this is not good. Uh, so I was finishing my bachelor's. Uh, I started realizing maybe I need a plan B and my school was highly rated. So I was like, you know, let me go for my MBA. Uh, I was the youngest person there. I was lucky I got accepted to the program. I probably shouldn't have been accepted to the program at that time. And while I was getting my MBA, I was getting recruited by the government and I decided to go work for them because I was like, wow, it's, it's nice to be recruited versus, you know, not being able to get a job in the finance section. And I got my first paycheck and I quickly realized that the government was not only my employer, they were also my business partner with the amount of taxes they were taking out. So I got my first paycheck and I was like, wow, this is a lot of money they're taking. How can I legally reduce this? And that kind of got me into alternative investments. Uh, That year, I bought my first rental property. Um, I definitely, you know, did every mistake known to every beginning investor. I bought in a, in a bad area, a bad property, uh, it ca- cause I was so, you know, blinded by the cash flow, and it was just a bad experience. I was like, I definitely don't want to scale this. Uh, 
but I want to continue investing. And I already had a sizable traditional portfolio. So I started looking into more passive note funds, ATM funds, uh, apartment buildings. It was a slow road. It took me many, many years to get there. Uh, but what I started realizing was my stock portfolio kept having this huge deficiency, which I couldn't get over. Uh, I wanted my portfolio to create both income and appreciation. And for a long time, I was just considering them separate. I was like, well, I have my traditional portfolio and I'm an alternative portfolio. I never thought about combining them. So I wanted my traditional portfolio to both appreciate and uh, create income. And every time I try to create income from my traditional portfolio, I failed miserably. I tried every single strategy known to man, you know, uh, utility companies and REITs and MLPs and closed-ended funds and high-yield bonds and everything. And every, every single time I would do this, I would get yield for a year or two and I would think like, hey, I'm onto something. And then like one market correction, I just lose all my yield for the last two years. So what I realized is the traditional side of my portfolio is really great at appreciation, but terrible at income. And I got to stop trying to peg it in there and try to, you know, the, the old adage of there was a circle in a square hole or whatever it is. I have to just, you know, I have to just put it on autopilot, my traditional side. I, you know, I found a, finally a low cost index fund and I just put it, set it, forget it. But then I needed to focus on income somewhere else. And during those years, as me building up the alternative side, I started realizing, hey, if I stop considering this traditional versus alternative and start considering it traditional and alternative, I could complement the deficiency in the traditional with my alternative. Because on my alternative side, I was yielding way better. And they're all private securities. So I wasn't dealing with the volatility that you would get from the, from the traditional side. So once I married the two, like it, it started taking off uh, after that. Yeah. And something you touched on there was, you know, those ETFs, those utility, those stocks, whatever you were investing in wasn't producing any income. And you're completely correct. The only way you're going to realize income is when you sell. The only time is when you realize a gain and you sell that asset. And it's very good at appreciating, but it's very poor at producing income. And those people that are, you know, dividend stock holders where they, you know, try to hold stocks that are very dividend heavy, it's really only a one, two, three, maybe 4% return annually from those dividends. And it's an issue versus looking at, you know, alternative assets like you listed, like I listed earlier and in your book that are producing uh, income, cash flow, the money's still there invested, but you have that money back that you can either spend on your living expenses or reinvest it into other aspects. And, you know, DJ and I were talking about that, I, I believe it was last night or this morning, how a return of capital during a syndication product is very po uh, powerful because not only is your initial investment or a portion of it back in your pocket, go throw it in another syndication or another investment. Well, the rest of the capital or the equity you still have in the group is continuing to give you a return in that asset. And that's very powerful. And, you know, you, you talk a lot about those assets in your book. And uh, now that we kind of know where you came from, the reason why you discovered these assets, I did want to touch on a few of them. Um, the first you had in there was uh, life insurance, uh, infinite banking. Why don't you explain those two and how they uh, could possibly produce an income for yourself? Sure. And this one is, you know, it's, it's, this is tricky because when I was interviewing the experts, so let me just rewind. The way I structured the book is it's a high level intro into the asset class itself. And then it transitions into two Q and A's with expert investors in the space. Uh, so what I wanted to do is with people that were unfamiliar with alternative investments, I wanted them to pick up a book. They could read a couple of pages. If they liked what they read in the apartment building chapter, then great. There are so many podcasts with apartment buildings you could learn, or there's 300 page books that are great. Uh, just for apartment buildings, but at least those 20, 30 pages should give you some kind of idea is if you want to learn more about this or not. And then right, it switches yep. over to a different asset class. So it also allows you that you don't have to read the book in one shot. You could, but you could start at, you know, you could read the ATM chapter and then that stops. And then the next chapter will be self-storage. You could stop it there or continue it. So I, I wanted to do that. I, I've been getting good reviews on the, on the bit size uh, component of it. So the life insurance chapter, 
I'm interviewing these two experts and I really wanted to include this specific type of life insurance. It's, uh, it goes by many names, be your own bank, infinite banking concept. It's really popular with real estate investors. So that was one of the things that I wanted to include about it. And the, the reason why I selfishly wanted to include about it is that this was one of those assets where I spent two years myself going through the pros and cons of whether or not I should invest in this. So I was like, I would have loved to have read a really concise, independent chapter where I'm not a life insurance salesman. I, I technically might still have my license or not, but I never ever used it. I mentioned it in my book, but I have no benefit from talking about this. Usually a lot of times you'll get the educational component from someone who has that license and is trying to get the commission and there's like a sense of biasness towards it. So I wanted an independent, you know, chapter, what are the pros, what are the cons, and how can you use them in the overall, your overall plan? So these, these policies are the inverse of anything you've imagined about life insurance policies. Like we're thought that life insurance policies should have a really high debt benefit to cover your family. And that's kind of the whole gist of life insurance uh, policies. You get it, you cover your family and you move on. And these policies, it's flipped. So the debt benefit is actually pretty small. And the part of the policy that stores the money, which is called your cash value, that is designed where most of the money that you're putting into the policy actually goes right to that. And that you have access to uh, once you put that money in. So the, the, the flow is you build up this policy. It's kind of like you're building up a line of credit. And then you use that line of credit to invest in other deals. And then the profits from those deals go back into the line of credits. But while you're using the money uh, in your other deals, your policy is still growing because you're getting distributions from the company. So you're kind of making your money work in two different places at the same time. Understood. Yeah. And very interesting concept. You don't hear a lot of people talk about it. You know, you, you hear people sometimes pitch you on the infinite banking. I've had people do that before. And it was just never of something that really took too much interest to myself. Then you, you kind of switched over into the apartment building aspect, which is very popular. You started talking about syndications. And, you know, if anyone's listened to the show, they know a thing or two about uh, apartment investing and what it has to offer. So I won't focus too much on that. Um, long-term mortgage notes. You don't really hear too much about long-term mortgage mortgage notes. Why don't you touch on that a little bit real quick? So long, you know, it's funny because life insurance, but the high equity, the, the infinite banking concept is also known as beyond bank. Mortgage notes is literally you are the bank. Uh, so what a lot of people don't understand is mortgages are, are securities that can be traded. Uh, it, it's a collateralized asset, uh, which makes things a little bit simpler. And I could write a mortgage on my own property. Uh, I could buy someone else's property. There's different positions. But the cool thing is you get all the advantages of amortization. So just like the bank, you look at your you know 30-year mortgage and you're like, wow, it's 3%. How does the bank make money? And then people are shocked that after 30 years, they've paid three times you know, they, it's $150,000 loan, they'll pay six, seven hundred thousand, And that's at these rates, you know, so that's how the bank makes money. It's off amortization. And that's the same thing. The mortgage notes allow regular investors to actually benefit that. Now, it also allows the uh, mortgage investor to actually customize where they could sell portions of those mortgages. So even though the mortgage is for 30 years, an investor that owns some of these mortgages can sell portions of those. So they could sell the first seven years of cash payment. So this, or, or the next seven years. Uh, so it's some, it's really, really flexible. Um, and the cool part is like, if you invest in a single family rental, you know, you're responsible if the, you know, the, the famous saying, Hey, you're going to get uh, the toilet uh, backed up at two in the morning phone call. You don't get this because you don't call your bank when the toilet is backed up. Right. So, so you don't deal with any of those problems and you, you, because of the compliance issues, because it is a mortgage and um, mortgages are heavily regulated, uh, you, you introduce what's called a mortgage service provider and they're basically a property manager for your notes and they take care of almost everything. They, they take care of the statements, the tax documents, and it's important that they're involved because they'll let you know, hey, you know, there might be a state legal uh, license requirement if you have a note in this state or you've reached your maximum amount of notes in the state. And you think they charge you a lot and they 
actually charge you like 10, 15 bucks a month. So you could get a property manager for 10, $15 a month, not deal with any of the, uh, the repair calls. And you can still uh, get all the benefits of uh, the amateurization schedule. And you can foreclose if they don't pay their mortgage, correct? So then you have the, uh, the real estate to back the property as collateral. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a completely collateralized asset, depending on what position you're in this first and second, and it'll take priority. But yeah, absolutely, you can foreclose. But then it also, it also there's a whole industry out there for non-performing notes. So mm-hmm. uh, people might wonder, like, why would I want to foreclose on it? And I mean, why would I want to buy something that might go get foreclosed? The reason is because you can what's called rehab the loan, where there's actual third parties. You don't have to do it yourself. You actually get third parties. And I, I have one in my book. Uh, Bill, Bill McCaffrey, and they go in and they actually work with the bar with the the borrower of the, the the loan money to actually rehab that loan. That might mean changing the terms. You know, Bank of America is not going to change uh, change change your terms if you uh, you know miss a payment. Well, right. that, maybe they would during COVID forbearance. I don't want to make any stereotype, but typically speaking, the big banks are not going to work with you. But in a situation where, because you as an investor are buying something at a discount, there's flexibility where you could say, hey, you know, if you make a payment, a one-time payment of blank, 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 we'll catch you up and restructure the loans, you know, reset the amortization schedule so it's better for the investor. But now the, the borrower is no longer behind and not, no longer in default. And the in- intention for most mortgage investors is not to foreclose. That should be there just to protect your investment. The intention right. nine out of 10, nine, 99 out of 100 times is literally to keep the borrower there. Uh, because just like having rentals, vacancy is a killer in both ways. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So let's say someone's listening to the show, they haven't read your book, and they're interested in this alternative investment that they can chase after. Where would someone go to pick up or purchase these notes? So that's where, you know, the whole point of the book is just to give an introduction. Uh, mm-hmm. I do have the places listed. There are third-party exchanges. There's also note funds. Uh, you can actually buy directly through them. Um, usually you need a high amount of capital to get involved in the note space. Uh, but there's also a really easy way of getting note exposure is you could invest in a note fund or you can invest in um, something similar to what I have since I have an income fund, we invest in a portion into different notes. So you'll get all those benefits of that consistent you know, capital without individually going and selecting a whole portfolio. So a lot of times for first time accredited investors, again, uh, it's important to just specify that most of these investments that we discuss are for accredited investors. Um, it's important that you can get a lot of the benefits by not going out and sourcing the deals yourself, you could just invest in a fund, but you would want the basic knowledge of what that fund is actually investing in so that you can actually make a more educated decision. Right. No, I think that's great. And it's definitely a very interesting alternative investment and a form of real estate investing when it comes down to it. Next chapter you kind of move on to is the mobile home park arena and the common misconceptions with mobile home parks is, you know, you know, the show Trailer Park Boys, you know, people think mobile home parks, they think of that show. It's just like a lower income trashier area, unfortunately, is what it's equated with. And there's some mobile home parks I've been into that are nicer than than some neighborhoods. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're really nice homes. They have amenities. And, uh, I, you know, I don't think we'll spend too much time talking about that one because we, you know, a lot of people on the, sh- the show, they're aware of mobile home parks. But what is your biggest attraction to the mobile home park arena, would you say? So this one is actually going to be, um, it's going to come off pretty altruistic and it really isn't designed for it, but it, it changed my perspective on what investing actually can mean. Um, so, you know, the primary purpose of investing is to make money. Anybody who says otherwise, I would take that with a grain of salt, but there are so many secondary benefits that it's unreal. And I began to realize them more when you're investing in a low income project. So we invested, uh, I personally invested in a mobile home park where it was like a joint venture and there was 52 spaces. And when we bought this park, if you go into Google reviews, you read, this is the Met Park. And this is, you know, this is literally all the stereotypes you can imagine. We went in there and over a span of two, three years, we didn't collect one payment because this was a heavy value ideal. 
And by putting nightlights and fences and evicting the drug dealers and everything like that, we transformed that park into something much, much better than when we got it. Uh, something where what you don't realize is 52 lots, that means 52 families. Now you got 52 families that are no longer subject to drug dealers in their park. There's 52 families now that have lights outside where if God forbid they have to walk to their car at night, they are not worried about you know a crime being convicted. Uh, so that is the most surprising thing I had in my mobile uh, that in my mobile home park investing experience is that the ability to transform lives. Now, then I started looking at my, my other deals. Some of my deals are class A properties. It's not really transforming the fact that you throw in an extra gazebo in the backyard, but it is transformation once you in some of those low income and class C and class D areas that little changes can impact families considerably, um, which is my answer. Yeah, and it also gets into you know some of these mobile home parks that are transient versus non-transient, and some are mixed. Uh, and now you start seeing some higher end stuff where they're they're doing all kinds of things. I've seen you know movie theaters and parks and fishing ponds and trails, and uh, so some of these things can really turn into Class A resorts uh, without having to deal with uh, some of the buildings and such, because that's kind of a separate entity. Is how do you handle the uh, transient versus some of the quote unquote permanent structures. Uh, but, you know, again, it's the, the key word there being mobile, but some of these things set in place permanently, uh, but they're, they're handled differently from a titling standpoint. So. Yeah. And it's definitely, it's, it's an industry that's victim to a connotation that is not fair uh, like you mentioned, there are some, you know, communities out there and you, I wouldn't call them trailer park. They're just a community. They're a community of beautiful homes. Uh, you know, people look out for each other in those communities and they have some amazing amenities, uh, better amenities than, uh, you know, other properties. So just like there's class A buildings and class B apartment buildings, uh, the classes aren't really defined in mobile home parks as much, but there's definitely class A mobile home parks. And those are, you know, I personally have would have no issues of living in there. I know that there's people who have a very, uh, you know, nomadic life and they love to travel and they're high net worth individuals. So then they live in those parks because, hey, it's it's they know when they come back for a month or two, they'll gladly stay there and enjoy themselves. And then for the rest of the 10 months there, they know they have a community there to support their house, that the house is not going to get broken into and et cetera. And I think you know, given that our country has such a low income housing shortage, um, if we could change the narrative around it and like, you know, you got these beautiful tiny houses and, uh, you know, all these uh, prefab houses, like if we could change the narrative and say, hey, why not encourage developers to put, you know, hundreds of these prefab houses together and it's not a mobile home community it's just a it's just a home where you know it's a thousand square feet but they're beautiful thousand square feet they're open kitchens and great places and make it more affordable to live in i, I think there's so much opportunity there but go to a board meeting and see how many mobile home parks have been approved in the last decade or two i think i i, I see numbers range on this but i i've seen in my research that it, it, there literally might be like two new mobile home parks approved a year, some crazy low number. Yeah, very uh, just, competition. yeah. So once you're in there, as long as you don't, there's, there's a provision called sunset provision where the mobile home park can be forced to close by the, the town, usually if it's a dangerous situation. Uh, but once you're in there, you have very little competition where, you know, there's not going to be a mobile home park next door to you that comes in new development, not like self-storage where you might have three in one block. Yeah, I mean, that brings us to our next topic, you know, self-storage, how much popularity it has grown and increased as far as development goes. And like you're saying in your book, the amount of self-storage that's been developed in the last several years has been more inventory that we've seen overall in self-storage. And I think this is, it's a really attractive asset class because it doesn't seem to be as such as a heavy management play because you're not dealing with the toilets, tenants staying there overnight, but it's a very large marketing play. And when you have these tenants that are on month to month, there's much more turnover. Yes, it's easy because you're just sweeping out a unit, but you, you have to allocate a very heavy marketing budget to keep that uh, self-storage facility at a high occupancy. You know, Let's hear a little bit about your thoughts on self-storage and, and why you enjoyed that asset. So self-storage is definitely a cool asset. Um, it, it probably mobile home park and self-storage the last decade 
uh, I would say have uh, increased in popularity. One reason because of that is because a lot of the sellers are still mom and pop sellers. And that term just means it's not institutional. It might be someone that owns just one park or, or one self-storage center. And the ability to you know, market as a buyer to those people is huge because you don't have brokers in the middle of it. And you know it's taken off, but as any asset, class that kind of takes off, the cap rates have, you know, decompressed considerably. Uh, But what's cool about self-storage, like you said, it's much more of an operational play. Um, You need, you need a team there, there's efficiencies in play. uh, But at the same time, you're not dealing with plumbing issues, and you're not dealing with electrical issues, you know, they're more or less empty boxes, you know. Um, What I really love about self-storage here is the ability to combine self-storage the concept of self-storage. Most people think self-storage is like just these huge big boxes. But what's really cool about self-storage when you're an investor in some of these deals is that there's ability to put self-storage almost anywhere because it's literally a box. If you have a box space, great, you can have self-storage. So I was on a tour with an apartment building syndicator in North Carolina and they had these old basements and they were above street and they were completely empty. And these things were like 20,000 square foot underneath every single apartment building. And there's 12 Pretty sure we buildings. know who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> D- DJ Smiley, we know not for who you're talking about. Yeah, and there, Because there are not many basements in the Carolinas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but right away, you know, the ability to say like, hey, this could be a self-storage place. Really cool. Like that's, that's awesome. Like it's a huge money making to, to your NOI. Now, same thing, mobile home park right you go into a mobile home park area usually these parks sit on acres you know so if you're sitting on acres and there's a lot of space but it can't be zoned for any more pads hey why not put 12 garages there same concept the garage and the self-storage believe it or not is very very close again a box that can open in the middle and you could charge rent for that so stuff like that is what i really love about self-storage is the ability to uh, maximize your other assets when you start thinking more instead of, oh, this is a mobile home park. It's only a mobile home park. But wait, it's a mobile home park, but there's all this extra space. Let's see what else we can get in this extra space. And it becomes an amenity. Now you got, you know, a mobile home park is tiny. I mean, a mobile homes tend to be smaller. Now you have this amenity, you have, yeah, you guys can also rent out a garage, you know, for an extra hundred bucks. Think about it. A lot rent is four or five, 600 bucks. Now you could get another garage for a hundred, two hundred dollars. You just boosted your, your NOI, like an incredible amount. It'll pay for itself pretty quick. So that's what I like about the self-storage industry. Yeah. And DJ and I, when we're looking at potential properties, we also are looking at uh, additional land that comes with the property or maybe a, a open plot of land that's near the property that we can build maybe additional units. But the big thing is, you know, it's, it's very inexpensive to just do a slab and, and steal. And you're talking about self-storage spots on those lots. And, you know, we look at the return on investment as well. Are we going to build something that's going to yield a five or 10% return on investment? Probably not. If we can get more of like 20 to 25% uh, return on investment for those construction costs or get those uh, self-storage facilities pre-leased to the, uh, the residents at the property, then that's an action, you know, we'll go after and we'll take, which is great. Um, DJ, did you have something there? Well, yeah. So I was, uh, I had an old story about uh, a, a mobile home park when I was working as an engineer where they had some environmental issues. An investor came in, saw the value in this place, which at the time I was not an investor, had no idea. And the numbers on this thing were crazy in that the, the guy who started the park and sold it and had pieced it together and wasn't environmentally compliant, was getting pressure from the state ended up selling this place for like 6 million bucks. It was a large recreational type, like seasonal park. And that investor held the thing for a year and a half, did some improvements, kind of cleaned up some of the issues that were going on and turned around and sold it a year and a half later for over $20 million. Huge home run when you can see the value in things. So yeah, these things certainly can command a, a nice price tag and produce some great income. Agreed. And Dennis, today, a lot of investors or syndicators are starting to switch over to the multi-asset model. They're not going after the, you know, the specified uh, single assets. They're going after the fund model. And you, you kind of talk about that in a sense where you talk about the, you know, the multi-asset funds. 
Why don't you touch on that for investors that are listening to the show? They understand what a syndication is, but they aren't familiar on what a, a multi-asset fund is, even though it kind of gives it away in the name. Uh-huh. You know, talk about that a little bit, though, and what that offers and, and then kind of segment that into um, your own company. Sure. Uh, so a multi-asset fund, like you said, it, it's in the name. So it could be one of two things. One, it could be a multi-asset of the same asset type. Like for an example, an apartment building operator, he'll start a fund because he wants multiple apartment buildings in that one fund. Uh, they usually do that for what I've deduced is that there's sometimes you will get a like a box office effect during raising season. And what I mean by this is like in the movie world, right? You don't want to, if your movie is not Star Wars, you don't want to go against Star Wars when, when it's launching, right? So what happens is, for example, last August, right? Out of my operators list, I think I had six, seven deals that came online in the same day. And most of these deals have some investors that overlap. So what ends up happening is a raise that should take two, three weeks now is taking double the time, a triple the time, and you don't want to compete without investors. So by having a fund, you could at least have a capital in there and it makes it a lot easier to you know, finish out the raise or whatever it is. So that's a multi-asset fund with the same asset class like an apartment building. Now, some operators are also doing a multi-asset where they are incorporating different asset classes into one fund. So what happens in the real estate world is even though you're a syndicator in apartment buildings, you probably know many investors who are doing hard money or doing the mortgage notes or investing in soft storage park and you have a marketing machine. So what it means is you have people trying to get the capital invested. So now you can take that money and say, but hey, I don't have now you're an apartment building uh, operator, but I don't have an apartment building in contract. I could put into this fund, we'll hard money the deal for six months. And then in six months, if we get an apartment building, we could then invest in the apartment building. So this way, you know, you have the capital and it's a lot easier. It, it alleviates a lot of that capital raising pressure. Uh, the benefits to an investor now is the funds can be designed in a way to really align yourself with what the investor wants. So for example, I like mobile home parks. I like self-storage. Instead of investing in two different funds, I found an operator who does both mobile home parks and self-storage. So my one investment now got me access to two different asset classes that I liked individually. So I got much more exposure from one deal. So those are some of the benefits. The other benefits is you could uh, create a fund to have a specific purpose, like an income fund or a growth fund. So if you're doing a growth fund, you invest in assets that are geared towards growth, but that might mean you know lower cash flow in the start and everything like that, but the total return should be higher. Now, if you have an income fund, it'll be the opposite. You kind of have the higher cash flow in, in the earlier years with more average returns going forward. So you can create these funds to really align yourself to the investors you're really trying to attract. So that's the multi-asset fund. And before I switch to my fund, uh, do you have any, do you want to hit, hit off on that in any bit? Yeah. I mean, it, talk about portfolio diversification, being able to go into a multi-asset fund. If you know they're offering two apartment buildings, two self-storage, one mobile home park, you, you've now hit three asset classes in your entire portfolio into one fund. And now you're, you're diversified. So <clears throat> maybe if one of those asset classes for some reason takes a hit, you have two other asset classes to back that up or, or make up the difference. So I think that's super important as well, for sure. Okay. And, and just to mention, a lot of these alternative investments, I'm sure your viewers know, are pretty expensive to get into. Correct. Uh, because, yeah. it's a, because it's a security, there's a lot of costs in setting up the securities. There's also a lot of compliance, uh, even from my side, because I'm a fund operator. You know, the, the break even to take in investor money is surprisingly pretty high. So a lot of the inv- investments in the alternative investment space is, you know, at minimum 50000 uh, That's typically. So just consider that instead of doing three investments in a mobile home park deal and a self-storage deal, you'd be in at a hundred thousand. Now, if you get into one good fund operator, now you have that exposure. Like for example, the mobile home park self-storage thing, I think they're investing in something like 30 to 40 deals. So my, you know, one, one, my minimum investment in one of those deals got me access to 30, 40, 40 different assets. Plus it got me access. It got me access to two different asset classes. And like you said, if you're going for income, I really like the way that it sounds when I have 30, 40 different assets 
protecting my income because you could probably take six, seven, eight, nine of them underperforming and you can still rely on the income that was kind of projected out to you. Yeah. So we frequently, when we're talking to investors, we've learned to ask, hey, what's most important to you as an investor? Before we start you know, shoving syndication data down their throat, it's important to hear what their goals are. And it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is matching up with those goals. And your book certainly is answering a lot of those questions and, and giving options. So for somebody that invests in one of your funds, like if somebody's familiar with syndications, like I am, uh, I'm an LP, I know what to expect from returns. I'm getting better every day about what questions to ask as we review deals. Uh, how set the expectation for returns in your fund versus somebody who's maybe specific to mobile home parks or self-storage, et cetera? Sure. Uh, so that's a great question. So I, I just want to rewind a little bit of where where I came from when I started my fund. Uh, when when I wanted to when I launched my fund, I put myself in my shoes, going through all those failed income strategies for the traditional side, and I said, "What would I have wanted at that time?" And what I would wanted is basically a REIT without the stock market exposure. That's what I was looking for because it's just simple math. If I'm getting one or two percent from my S&P 500 low cost index fund, I want to blend that out so it's four or five at least, right? So that's where I was kind of going with. I was like, hey, if I created a fund that has all private securities, high quality institutional alternative investments like apartment buildings and self storages and and notes, um, how can I how can I align that with my younger self? And what I was looking for was steady and from day one. Now, the problem is if you just invest in an apartment building fund, what happens is you're subject to the natural flow of that apartment building. And what I mean by that is if you look at a typical value add deal in the apartment building world, the cash flow in the first few years are lower than the back end. Uh, that's just logic because there's costs associated with purchasing the apartment building. It takes time to implement the apartment, the business plan for that apartment building. And I call it the drag. So if you only invest in apartment buildings, you're probably going to have that drag and it's going to lower your, you know, your income that you would receive from that fund. So that was the whole point of me doing a multi-asset fund was I was like, if I just did apartment buildings, I would have that drag. And I didn't want that drag because I felt like my investors valued almost the same day one returns that they can expect throughout the fund. So that's where I kind of incorporated ATM funds and note funds into it to, to, get to counteract the drag from just the institu institutional quality apartment buildings. So even though the majority of my assets in my fund are the apartment buildings, I wanted just enough alternative assets to complement it where I could almost pay out the same return from day one. So my total returns are probably going to be less than if you individually went and invested in apartment, in apartment bills or mobile home parks. But my preferred return is basically what I'm paying out. I'm paying out almost a full preferred return from day one for my investors. So that's the difference. So I felt that there was value in that where I would avoid some of the complications you get in the syndication world. Like for some, some uh, investors, they're not really looking for that home run investment. They want consistency. They want to know that the underlying investments are high quality investments. So I'm not going out there and chasing the 20, 30% IRRs. I'm investing in high quality operators. And what I so the way I structured it is that they would get the same preferred return from day one, but there would be no backend splits so that they don't have to worry how those assets actually perform, but they would be able to rely on the income that the fund would generate. Yeah, absolutely. And so that goes back to what we had said about, you know, investor goals, right? So some of these people may want to roll the dice and maybe they don't need their cash up front right away. So it's always interesting for me to compare these, you know, kind of the, I don't even want to call it pros and cons, but some of, you know, the uh, details relative to the investment and what makes it strong for this particular person. The investing world, you do need to be diversified. It, it's extremely important to do that. Uh, and you're offering, you know, just a great tool to do that. So I love this approach. Uh, and I, I think it's a, a huge, because there's a lot of people out there that certainly will shy away from what we're doing because it's not diversified enough. Um, so what about on the tax side of things? I'm assuming it operates like any other fund out there. Uh, just talk to us about that part of it. 
so the, uh, you're right. So it is a Schedule K. It's a partnership. Um, so you would get a Schedule K at the end of the year. But because I have a fixed preferred return and there's no additional distribution of profits, what, what I'm able to do is actually do the Schedule K earlier in the year because I don't have to wait until all my Schedule Ks come in. But the, the negative part about that is the depreciation does not pass through. So this is this fund is geared perfectly towards like self-directed IRAs and solo 401ks, uh, or if you're invested in other projects that have passive losses in their deal, because then it will offset the income generated on my deal uh, on on my fund. So it's important because I think tax is one of the most um, marketed benefit for syndicators, and some of them don't even understand their own tax complications because they'll use terms like, oh, this is tax-free and this is tax-friendly. And in reality, a lot of those deals are just tax-deferred, right? Uh, That's the bottom line. Everything else that they do is marketed cleverly. And what I what I try to tell my investors is that it's like kicking the can down the world, the the road. Eventually you're gonna have to pick up that can. uh, But in with if you just invest in syndications, you really have to know your tax planning. Uh, when you invest in a fund like this, because you're not getting some of that depreciation, you're just getting an income. So, you know, uh, 7% and you've invested X amount, you know that that's the income you're going to get. Uh, so it allows you to more easily plan if you're not into having, you know, 20, 30 different syndications and everything like that. Yeah. And touching on that depreciation, deferring the taxes instead of just making the taxes disappear tax-free, it it is correct. It needs to be highlighted and people need to understand how that tool works. Being able to defer the taxes and and kick it down the road allows you all that income, all that money you're bringing in to then reinvest it itself so you can multiply it and get that money back quicker and build up that higher return instead of having less money to show for it at the end of the year, not having as much to invest. So I think that's really important that people understand that. And, yeah, and Dante and I just talked about our, uh, you know, upcoming uh, meetup that we're going to do and, and something we want to do for investors that we've actually seen in the syndication world is uh, how people calculate their cash on cash and what's industry standard, uh, because that can be manipulated, especially if there's returns along the way, if there's a return of capital, how is that actually done and what are people showing and you know, making sure, again, we would like our investors to be educated, ask the right questions. What we don't want to do is set the expectation for an unrealistic return that's not going to be achieved and under-deliver. So certainly using reasonably conservative underwriting is important to us. Uh, But I got to imagine with somebody like you who's focused on these alternative investments, Things like that have to be important to you, right? In terms of just us and how how we communicate things and what you've seen out there. Do you see some of this misleading information? 100%. You know, it's actually funny you mentioned this because I actually saw a post today in social media and the person said, you know, I hate all the, you know, the newer, I guess, newer operators who are projecting these really high returns because it makes it hard for the next guy uh, when you could actually hit those returns. Uh, you know, I took the flip side to that argument. I say, I love like now being more seasoned and having years under the belt. I love the unrealistic return models because it allows me to just delete like right away. Uh, and I don't have to waste any time looking at those deals. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, the reason why is because I have a huge operator circle and I'm an operator myself. So if I have five deals in Texas and these are really great operators are all promising 13 to 15% IRR, you know, and all of a sudden I get something in my inbox in the same area and it's a name I've never seen anymore. And they're promising a 26% IRR <laughs> delete because yeah, are, are yeah. they better than the hundred thousand units of operators that I have in my solar circle? I Maybe. I just don't think so. So it sometimes I, I like to look at it from that perspective because as a newer investor, you tend to get blinded by the higher numbers and you don't look at the substance of a deal. As a as a more experienced investor, I, I find that you stop looking at the numbers. You just want to make sure it's not an outlier, 
right? So I just want to make sure these 13, 14, 15, it falls in line with what I've been seeing uh, with the thing. And then I'll really focus into the, the specifics of the deal of what the cap rate is on the exit and everything like that. Uh, but I will at least filter out some of the spam because that's what they are, uh, yeah. money losing spam. I'll filter that out relatively quick. Yeah, and yeah. I'm big on the saying, you know, under promise over deliver. So when I see operators looking at their exit cap rate and using the same exit cap rate as they went in or a cap rate that's even less than what they went in at. So maybe they purchased the property at a five and they're going in at an exit cap rate of four and a half. And they have this, maybe, maybe it is a 16 or 17% IRR. To me, that just shows risk where I'd rather take, okay, if we're going in at a five or 5.25% cap rate, I want to show that exit cap rate higher that, you know, at, at the minimum higher, maybe it's, if it's 5.25, I want to show it at 6%. And then if I do spit off a 15% IRR and let's say I am super conservative and I under promise, but am able to over deliver in that, maybe cap rates do stay, stay the same, or maybe they compress a little bit more or they don't go up as high as we project. And now because of that, our internal rate of return is 20% and it's a true 20%. And we're, we only will know that is when we exit that, that project. Yeah. And I also think, um, like I, I talk to some newer operators sometimes, and I think they make the mistake sometimes to try to project the higher numbers. And I think like, Hey, you realize you're also training your investors to think like this. Uh, they'll always that, want those returns on every They'll day. always want those returns and it's not 2012 anymore. So, you know, go for it. Like, that's why, you know, some of the people in my book that you, you know who I got, they don't project above 13 to 15. They don't. It's like consistent. They're like, hey, I, I, I'm, even though their last nine deals have outperformed that, they just don't project more than that because they want to have expectations. That's why with something like a fund, you could kind of you you should kind of get more consistent towards that projected versus individual deals may really blow the, the projections out of the water or really come in underneath that. So what what's your take then on uh, this? Is a question that's come up recently with us: is your take on cash on cash? If capital is returned during the life of the hold period, would you calculate your cash on cash? based on the original investment throughout the entire deal? Or would you correct it each year for uh, the capital that's remaining in the deal? What's the proper way to show cash on cash? This is as DJ's as, hot question this it, week. It is He's my like six operators. <laughs> so, so my theory is, this is more of a, as me as my limited partnership hat on. I'm okay with you showing the higher cash on cash as long as you're not considering the actual distributions as a return on, um, as long as you're showing the actual distributions as a return on capital, not of capital, right? Okay. I hate the fact that like, if you go and you distribute me my my preferred distributions and you're not returning any of my capital, but now you're using that to lower the, you know, the uh, um, what they have to pay the preferred, that I have a problem with. Mm -hmm. But to me, if you do a capital event and you return, you know, 50% of your money and you want to calculate from that point forward, I'm okay with that because now I got 50% of my money to go take and put somewhere else. Absolutely. And I'm okay with it too. And I've seen syndicators do it both ways. Uh, so, and it's interesting. I feel like some of them actually are shooting themselves in the foot if they, you know, show it such that uh, they base it on the initial investment because really your cash on cash is higher. If they're returning that capital and still calculating based on the initial investment, that's going to lower your cash on cash. And they're in fact showing me a lower number than what my actual cash on cash is. I would say the bigger issue, I don't know this personally, my bigger issue is the misrepresentation of a preferred return. That's what drives me more nuts. When I see a deal, oh, look at this deal. It's a 12% preferred return. I'm like, okay, great. But there's a projected refi at the end of year one. So what, who cares about the preferred return? It's going to be gone at the end of year one anyway for the portion that gets returned. So that's where I, I have more problems when people do that because someone's going to sign up to that deal and think that a preferred return is more like a dividend. And they're going to expect that 12 throughout the life of the deal. Right. And then, you know, that to me is more problem because you're, you're, you know that most investors that don't really understand what a preferred return are going to be misled by that. And you're still marketing the higher preferred return that I have more of an issue with than the cash on cash representation. 
and communicating and being transparent with your investors. If you are, if you have a return of capital event in year two because of a cash out refinance and 50% is going back to the investors, communicate that with them and communicate that the your cash on cash return is going to adjust according to the capital remaining in the deal. And that's, it, it's your true return on investment because if I give you money back and that's not your initial capital, you can't calculate that for your return on investment because that capital is back in your pocket and you go and reinvest it somewhere else. If I did a hundred thousand in a deal and I got 50,000 back at the end of year two, I want to see what those returns are based off of, of my actual capital that is remaining in the deal as far as principle goes. That's been like a DJ and I is like hot seat question this week, you know, as we've been talking to other operators and, you know, been on other calls, just kind of, cause everyone does it a little different and we just want to understand what each operator is doing. And again, just being transparent on that. Yeah. Well, while, while it gets away from the topic in your book, it, it's extremely relevant to your level of expertise because you're out there evaluating these deals. So, you know, that type of feedback, certainly for our investor community is huge. Yeah. Agreed. And kind of circling back to the, the towards the ending of your book, one section that I was excited to read about because about a year ago, I started to explore it a little bit myself is uh, ATM funds and ATMs are actually a very advantageous investment. And what people don't understand is they're very heavy in income. And it, it, like I said, it was something I was getting into myself, the, the Hyo Sung Halo 2s, you know, I was looking to order some of those machines and uh, the concept behind ATMs being that, you know, People, I believe you use the term unbankable is, is what it was, I believe. Uh, Dennis, is that correct? Uh, the non-banked or something? N- non-banked. non-banked, yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I mean, individuals that typically it's in lower income areas, but higher income earners like ourselves typically aren't using ATMs. We're typically not using cash. So we don't believe in that investment as much. But then when you start to dig into the numbers and the whole concept of ATM is, you know, having an ATM putting cash in it in those cassettes and having a fee every time someone draws out of it. And that fee is the income and maybe you're splitting it with the, uh, the place of business that it's set in there. I've seen some syndicators start to move into that arena, buying funds of 3000 ATM machines. I've seen as big as that, that big 3000 ATM machines in a single fund that you can buy a portion of. Dennis, talk to us a little bit about that asset class and really what it has to offer and, and what you enjoy about it. Sure. So this is one of those other ones that I would put right in with infinite banking, where it took me like two years to feel comfortable that this thing was not a scam. Um, So one thing I- Especially a cash business. (laughs) Cash business. So one thing I wanted to mention in my book is like every asset class I had, I literally went and I tried to research like all the scams that were associated with that asset class. And usually you find one or two, Uh, the higher the cash- in a business, usually the more susceptible it is towards uh, like a scam. So the problem with ATM funds is it is also a very high, you know, scammy business because you have a lot of cash going on. Like I found one Ponzi scheme like over 10 years ago in New York, actually downstate um, that had the, that was projecting, they had 4,000 machines and then they really only had 400. Um, and of course, all their investors, you know, lost their principal and everything like that. And then, you know, it, nothing about their deal would have really stuck out because they were projecting the same type of returns, the industry kind of norms. So, but the, the, the problem is what I wanted to show in my book was that, hey, there's really easy catches to that, right? So I have like a due diligence checklist that I got one from one of the best investors in that space. And one of the simple tricks he is, is if you're talking to an ATM fund operator, just get a list of ATMs where they are and go there. If you're going to spend $50,000 on investment, go there. Uh, So, you know, if you think about my scenario where this one bad operator had 400 and was advertising 4,000, do the math. If you visited one random space, not one that he would provide for you, just one random space in his list, what was the chances of you actually visiting an ATM machine that was operational and making money? Now do the math and throw in a second one. It drops down to like 1% chance. You would have to have been the unluckiest investor ever. If you just took the one simple step of actually going to an ATM, uh, you know, uh, ATM machine and checking if it's there. So the other thing I wanted to point out is I'm t- when I was talking about these ATMs in my book, I was doing, I wasn't purchasing 
an ATM machine myself. Right. So these funds. were, yeah. yeah, these are institutional quality where they have large teams in place and they go in and these, these funds uh, operators are also audited and they, there's certain checks and balances that you want to see. Uh, I'm not going in and checking if my ATM machine has money in there. Uh, so that's also important to note is that as a fund investor, you're investing in the quality of the fund team and their ability to, uh, you know, have these locations uh, that can service a population that's willing to pay those fees. Yeah. So, and- yeah, go ahead. No, you, know, you make a great point. You are not physically going to these locations, filling up with cash, checking transaction balances, because I wasn't aware an ATM fund existed. There's so many alternative assets, like you mentioned here, that people aren't aware of that existed. Because when you own an ATM, you are, you are literally carrying thousands of dollars in cash, putting it in the cassettes for these ATMs in typically lower income areas. And you have to keep an eye on these assets. And that's why I, I steered away from it was because I was like, I don't want to have to contact these businesses. Some of these businesses already have ATM machines. Now I have to take time. You know, my time is valuable. What, what is your return on uh, um, effort is, is what I say. The return on effort, how much effort am I going to put into this to get these ATM machines, buy them, get them put in there, get them hooked up with internet, uh, convince someone to let me put them in there, now tie up some of my own personal capital and put it into those physical machines and also with the risk associated. Yes, there's different insurance plans and whatnot, but I, I think it's a really cool asset. And something else you mentioned in your book was during COVID, places like salons, you know, barbershops, different places of business that were closed down didn't do very well because people weren't there using the ATMs, but other places that were open or uh, seen as um, essential businesses, they picked up even more because they picked up the slack from the people that weren't at those establishments, taking out funds from ATMs and going to the ones that were open and they were doing really well. So I'll definitely have to do a little bit more research on those funds because that checks off. Here's a real world example. Someone that doesn't have the time and doesn't want to operate ATMs themselves, but someone that wants to be involved in that business, that's cash flow heavy. It really is at the end of the day. It's it's a very good return on investment and diversifying my portfolio. So, you know, we'll we'll definitely talk about that off the show a little bit. I think that's pretty sweet. And there you go. Reading a book and already pulling some value from it. Yeah. And the other thing I want to mention to ATM fund for your investors is you have to be comfortable with the business model. So uh, like apartment buildings, right? You invest in, you hopefully get some portion of the, the profits during the life of the investment. And then you get a heavy dose of capital if it sells or if there's a refi. That's the typical business model for apartment buildings, mobile home park, self-storage. That's because the asset has appreciated in value. ATM fund is the exact opposite. The collection of assets that they do, because they usually, they buy what's called a tranche, which is just a, a, a few different ATM machines with your investment. And it's brand new when they buy it. But however, when was the last time you went into an, a store or a thing and saw a seven-year-old ATM, ATM machine? So what ends up happening is after seven years, it almost depreciates to zero. So the way that this investment works is it's heavy cash flow throughout the investment. And you get all your money back and you make your returns. But at the end of the investment, you have to be comfortable with the fact that you're going to get zero at the end of the day. There is usually a very small, they might give out small payment for that, uh, for the, you know, the, the, the lot. But generally speaking, you're coming out with zero. So it's, it's the inverse model to most syndications. Yeah, very well worded. Again, very cash flow heavy. Uh, realistically, no appreciation there. If you can sell ATMs on the secondary market or something, you know, it, somewhere it, it'll be tough, but very, very eye opening. And, and again, a very cool asset. Um, DJ, did you have anything more for Dennis while we're talking to him before we head into the next section of the show? I think we've, you know, we've covered a lot of different investment options. We've picked his brain a lot and we've kind of been all over the place, but it's good. It, it gives people uh, some insight on what's available out there. Yeah, probably only about a hundred more questions, but we should probably move right, on to yeah. our curious cues. He's, yeah, Dennis is packed with great stuff, so this has been awesome. Yeah, great job, Dennis. And with that said, let's head over to our next section of the show called the Curious Cues. We're going to throw some questions at you that we ask every guest on the show. Dennis, are you ready? Sure. All right. First question is favorite podcast you enjoy listening to. So recently, I have been listening to Elevate. 
podcast with Tyler uh, Chesler, I believe. I don't. I hope I don't butcher his last name. Uh, I was lucky enough to be a guest, and I, I started listening to a couple of his shows. He's a real estate syndicator, but he also focuses on like your mindset and your well being. Mm. So he'll he'll bring in like a dietitian on. And that, that dietitian will explain by how having a good diet can actually, and then Tyler will actually tie that in to, well, if you have a good diet, you sleep more and you can be a better investor. So he's a, he's a, he's an investor, but you're not going to just get on a show and he's not, gonna, he's not just going to tell you about his recent deal. He's going to show you how to be like a more well-rounded person. So you, you, uh, you can become a better investor naturally. Awesome. Love to check that out. Besides your own favorite book you enjoy reading? So right now, um, I've been saying my book a lot lately just because (laughs) during editing, during the editing stage, you end up reading it like 600 times. So it comes like in doctrine. Uh, But one uh, book that I recently read, someone in uh, one of my masterminds recommended it is uh, the, The Five Languages. One second, let me pull it up. So I had someone recommend that one as well. Um, I'm the name's escaping me. The author has like six different books out. So it's the five love languages, Gary Chapman, and it is geared towards uh, a spouse, your relationship with your spouse, but it can honestly, it can really apply to almost any aspect of your life, like relationship with your kids and just relationship. It's just about understanding that people value different things. Uh, your spouse might value if you give her a compliment or your spouse might value if you take out the garbage. Uh, finding out what she values can allow you to spend your time more efficiently mm. because, you know, you could spend the whole day complimenting her. And the fact that you didn't take out the garbage might lead to a divorce versus oh, you. <laughs> but, you know, I'm obviously right, right. It's being true. Extreme. It's yeah. absolutely <laughs> true. Discover each other's love language. Yeah. And then I'm curious but, to hear the segue into investing. Yeah. So, well, the investment part is some people really focus, like if you have a, a partner that you're a GP with, like, hey, what is he valuing? Is he valuing that you're going to underwrite the deal? Uh, or is he going to value that you're going to make that call to your broker? Because, you know, I think uh, your love relationship with your business partner is just as important as not as important in case my wife is listening to this podcast, not as important, <laughs> but very important that you have a really good relationship with your your business partner and you know what they value. So you you make sure you're picking up your slack because you need to, you know, you, you're in this deal together. So it's important that you can uh, you know help each other out. Yeah, that's good. And also good recovery. Uh, biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome? I will definitely say the networking. Um, if like I've gone on record and say, if you're not going to network, you shouldn't invest in alternative investments. Um, and I am not a shy person, but I am also not a person that likes to go on. And, and what I ended up, what I realized was, when I was really getting into alternative investments, I thought they were like the greatest thing ever. And I would go to like a barbecue and I would tell my best friends that I grew up with and they have zero interest in this stuff. Right. So, you know, and then I would take their like lukewarm responses as like, oh, maybe I should talk less about it. Uh, but when you start surrounding yourself with a really good network that also finds this stuff interesting, it's like magic. And I think you got to get to the point where you got to realize your network that you grow up with is not the network you need to surround yourself with to become successful in alternative investments. Gotcha. Okay. And favorite non-real estate or investing hobby? Okay. So this is probably, I, I, I come from like a Russian culture. So I have a, like one of my live streams is to have a sauna in my house. So I actually put it in uh, like my backyard. I retrofitted like a shed for the sauna. And um, my father, who's kind of aging up there, he comes over once a week. He cooks like really traditional Russian food for my kids. And my kids don't really speak the language or anything like that, but they absolutely like adore the food because he just puts pounds of butter my, my kids probably are, have like clogged arteries, uh, but, <laughs> but um, to see them like enjoy the food. And then once a week, we always, we go into the sauna. So he cooks and then we go into the sauna and like my five-year-old goes into the sauna for a little bit. And just to see that like lineage. And I know my father like 
super appreciates seeing his grandkid in there because like it makes him feel so good. So that that would be my favorite hobby is the sauna because it allows to connect three generations of my family. Awesome. I love that. That's pretty sweet. And last question or just about last question, newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started investing in alternative assets? It's, it's not like a hidden secret world. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like there's like this, like the Chronicles of Narnia type of situation where like, like you have to go to the right restaurant and speak the right password to the bouncer to get into this exclusive club. And it's not that there's so much information out there when you start going down the rabbit hole. And yes, it's going to take time to go through the misleading information and the spam information, but it is so worth it because your traditional assets can only take you so far. And once you introduce alternative investments, it's such a game changer and it's so worth it. And at the same time, I also want to, I want to get out there that sometimes being just because you really like real estate doesn't mean you should sell all your stocks. Uh, you know, what I love is collateralization and figure out ways to keep your stocks, but collateralize them so you can put more money into alternative investments and vice versa. That's like one of my favorite topics. Uh, so I just think it's important to let investors know that it's not like a zero sum world. There's, there's alternative investments are there. You just need to know where to look or who to ask or which podcast to listen to. And at the same time, just because you find something new doesn't mean you should get rid of everything else in your, your past. Sometimes it just requires a little tweak. Awesome. I love it. Well, Dennis, this has been phenomenal. We really appreciate you coming on the show, taking some time, sending me over a copy of your book. Let me uh, dive into that. If you don't mind just letting our listeners know if they want to talk to you more about these alternative assets or invest with you or whatever that is, where can they get in contact with you? So the best place is for, for my book, it's on Amazon. So if you just go on Amazon and you search Dennis Shapiro, Dennis with one N, uh, you'll find it pretty easily. So I'll just spell, spell my name really quickly, D-E-N-I-S and Shapiro, S-H-A-P-I-R-O. The book is called Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. Um, that's highly recommended. And then the best place to actually connect with me is my website. It's S-I-H capitalgroup.com. So one thing I did uh, was I took out two parts of my book. So my book is a lot of content and a lot of Q&As. So I made an abridged version of the content and I made a bridge version of the Q&As. So if you're not in the mood to read 300 pages of alternative investments, you come in, sign up for my email list and you can get abridged versions of both. And that'll give you a pretty good primer of where to start with alternative investments. And if you click that education tab on my website, I have over 30 to 40 articles uh, that are derived from everything, basically what we just talked about. Awesome. I love it. Again, thank you so much, Dennis, for coming on the show. And we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.